We're getting to the end of the story of Joseph. Uh, you might know from Joseph and his technicolored dream coat. Uh, Joseph has finally been reunited with his family back in Egypt. Jacob, his father, uh, is on his deathbed. Uh, and there we meet him. Chapter 48 and verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you and I'll make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who's redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother, shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword. And with my bow. Let me pray. Uh, our Father, uh, we know too that one day uh, we will, like Jacob, uh, be on our deathbeds. And we pray uh, now that as we uh, hear your word to us through this uh, passage in Genesis, uh, that we might be strengthened with faith in the Lord Jesus to face that last day with confidence. Uh, we ask therefore in his name. Amen. 
Uh, if you create the world you ideally want, what would it be like if you were suddenly made supreme dictator and you had all the power on earth? What would the world, the ideal world, look like for you? Well, we've all got our own tastes and preferences. Some of us uh, want a world full of chocolate rivers, like in China, the chocolate factory. Uh, some of us would like a world of endless sport. Some of us would like a world with no sport. There are lots of little differences in character, but fundamentally, I suspect that, that our dreams would be the same. If you get a class of children at primary school and say, design the ideal world, then once you sweep away the roller coasters and the chocolate fountains, you get down more or less to the same place. And I suggest to you this morning, that would be the same if you did it with a classroom of adults. That the world you end up with is very much like the world described right at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, It's a world where everyone is at harmony with one another. Uh, We don't fear uh, one another. Uh, There's no jealousy or rivalry. There's no heartache. There are no broken relationships. Uh, No one is disappointed or fearful or hurt or scared. Uh, Instead, well, love rules. And just as there's harmony with one another, so too there's harmony with the world. Uh, No one goes hungry. No one gets cancer. Uh, No one dies young. Uh, Instead, the world is a place of peace and beauty. And that is very much the world described at the beginning of the Bible. It is the world, you might say, the world we all want. But it very clearly is not the world we live in. Uh, we have a, a little saying, don't we? When someone sneezes, we say, bless you. I don't quite know where it came from, uh, but bless you. Uh, and sometimes perhaps your granny will say to you, oh, bless. You know, if a little grandchild does something cute or something like that. But, but the word bless it is well, pretty much without meaning in our culture, isn't it? And yet that is the world that God uses at the beginning of the Bible to describe that world we all want. And it brings in an extra factor, not just harmony on the horizontal level with one another, not just peace and safety with the the world, but also a a relationship upwards with God. Uh, When God finishes making the world, and for now I'm not going to get into the science and Christianity kind of debates, but but when God finishes making the world, he looks at the world and the people he's made and he blesses them. And that is a sign, that idea of blessing is a sign that the those first, that first man and woman are at peace, not just with one another, not just with the creation, but with their creator God. True harmony, true peace, true safety, true blessing is only going to be found when we're restored to that world. Now, actually, the, the Bible tells us that that whole world was destroyed incredibly quickly. And we know, we look around us, we live in a world of massive disharmony. But right the way through the book of Genesis that we've been looking at this term, uh, we've seen that the the promise of that world, a promise of a restoration of that world of peace and harmony and love and safety and of reconciliation with God above has been passed down. A bit like the relay runners. Children, have you seen people run the relay race? Do you ever see people run the relay race at the Olympics? As they run around the track, they don't just run on their own, do they? They pass something on. They pass a baton on. The first runner runs and passes on to the second one. Second one to the third one. They pass on the baton. It's been a bit like that with Genesis. And as we begin chapter 48, Jacob, who is holding the baton, explains to Joseph, his son, to whom he's about to pass it on. 
uh, that he is the one through whom this blessing is going to come. Look look down at verse 4. Jacob is looking back at his life, and he says to Joseph, verse 4 of chapter 48, God came to me and said, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. Just as God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. I'll make you a company of peoples. Okay, you'll be a great number of peoples again. And I will give you, well, a land, verse 4. I will give a land to your offspring for an everlasting possession. God comes to Jacob, so their relationship is restored. And he promises that one day, Jacob's descendants will be a great people and live in a land of safety. Now, Jacob isn't there. He's dying. He never gets there. But he, in this passage, is passing on the promise to his descendants. And ultimately, this passage gives us a clue about how we, well, we can get in on that act, if you like. We can receive that world. It tells us how true blessing comes to us. Two things uh, this morning, two clues, if you like, if we're building the, the picture, putting the jigsaw together as to how we can receive that blessing, ultimately of being restored to eternal life. Ultimately, of living with God in peace and harmony in his heavenly kingdom forever. So what can we see? Well, Genesis 48, we're, we're told, we're shown that the blessing comes through the youngest son. The blessing comes through the youngest son. It's a strange story, isn't it? A very odd story. Jacob's on his deathbed, and he, what he does is he adopts Joseph's sons. So Joseph is Jacob's son, and Joseph has got two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. And at the beginning of the story, Jacob says, well, well come, bring them to me, and they will become my sons. Uh, verse 6, the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. So all your other sons can be yours, Joseph. But just the verse before, Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are. So these guys are being upgraded a generation, if you like. They're going to be part of the 12 sons of Jacob. In part, for those of you who know the rest of the story, that's because Levi is going to go off scene. He's going to be the tribe of priests, so he won't get any land. So Ephraim and Manasseh fill the gap. But then you get this strange story, the strange, there was most of the chapter really. Joseph brings the two boys in, uh, the elder and the younger. Uh, The elder is Manasseh and the younger It's called Ephraim. And he brings them and he puts them uh, on Jacob's knee. And what does Jacob do? Well, he crosses his hands over. Uh, In in their culture, the right hand was the position of preeminence. We still say that, don't we? If you're at the right hand of the king, you're kind of the person who's most important after the king. So the right hand is the most important. The left hand is the second most important, the less important. And what Jacob does is he gets his right hand that should have been on the eldest boy, Manasseh, and he crosses it over and puts it on the younger. And he gets his left hand and puts it on the elder. And Joseph's a bit grumpy about that. Do you see that in verse 17? When he sees that Jacob's doing this crossing over thing, it displeased him. Literally, he was angry. What are you doing? Okay, this is not how it works. I mean, this is essentially like, imagine that, you know, Prince Charles has become king, he's on the throne, then Charles dies, and it's time for William to be crowned. So William's there on the throne uh, in Westminster Abbey. And Kate is sat next to him. And Harry's standing just to the side, the left-hand side, you know, is his sort of second in charge. And the Archbishop of Canterbury comes up with a crown and instead of putting it on William's head, switches and puts it on Harry's head. It's, it's that kind of outrageous. The wrong one is receiving the greater blessing. 
actually, this has been going on all the way through Genesis. If you read the story of Genesis, time and time again, God blesses the younger over the older. It happened with Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve. Cain was received, sorry, Abel was received by God, but he was the younger one. Cain was rejected. Cain then killed Abel. And Seth, the third child, is the one through whom God blesses the world. It happened with Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham's sons. Ishmael was older, Isaac was younger, Isaac got the blessing. It happened the next generation with Jacob and Esau. Esau was older, Jacob was younger, but Jacob got the blessing. It happened with Judah's kids, Perez and Zerah, same thing, crossed over. And now, last, at least in terms of Genesis, with Ephraim in Manasseh. What is going on? Why this whole thing about the younger being blessed and this switching? Very strange, isn't it? I expect what it's doing is actually starting a trajectory that, that goes on through the Bible, points us onward. Genesis is a book of beginnings. Okay, it's, the right, it's the start of the story. And it doesn't always have the answers. The answers are often found further on in the Bible. And I suspect what this story and all those kind of crossing over type stories are telling us is that ultimately true blessing, okay, that world we all want, is going to come through God's, well, youngest son, who is God's youngest son? Jacob's got lots of sons. Abraham had sons. But who is God's youngest son? Well, three people are called God's son in the Bible, predominantly. The first was Adam in the garden. He was called God's son. And he lived in that world we all want, that land of blessing. But he ruined it. He rebelled. He trashed it. And therefore, we live in a broken world. He was God's first son, if you like. And then God tries to rebuild the world through the people of Israel, or Jacob. They're the same person, Jacob and Israel, the two names for the same guy. And he calls the whole nation, my son. Think of the verse in Hosea, out of Israel, I called my son. He, he tries to build a perfect kingdom in Israel that will spill out and bless the world. But that goes wrong too. They disobey, they're disinterested. And eventually that son too fails. But come with me right to the other end of the Bible and Luke's gospel. Come with me to Luke chapter 3. It's on page uh, 800 and 858. 858 in the church Bibles. Luke chapter 3. And we meet the final person in the Bible who's identified particularly as God's son. The last of the sons. Uh, Luke chapter 3, uh, and from verse 23 onwards, you, you get this whole genealogy, a whole list of descendants, or sorry, of not descendants, of ancestors of Jesus Christ. If you look right at the end, the last verse of the chapter of 38, ultimately Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. But just before the genealogy begins, before that big long list of names that includes all the people we've talked about earlier in the uh, Genesis. Just look what happens. You see the baptism of Jesus uh, at the end, uh, well, verse 21. Jesus was baptized, verse 21, at the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This son, God says, this son I'm pleased with. This son isn't disobedient like Adam, doesn't wander away from me like Israel. This son, the final son I've sent, this son is pleasing to me. 
And as the story goes on, we see that this son is the one who actually earns the blessing, who deserves that world we all want. So you get the genealogy, and you see at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus goes straight into battle, uh, the temptation scene. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. This is the, this is the, the heat of the battle, if you like. This is the moment when this son, Jesus, the youngest son that God has sent, could go astray, we might be thinking. Satan, the captain of the enemy army, is coming for him. And Satan tempts him in the same way as he tempted Adam. Have you ever noticed that? So the first temptation down there in verse 3, Jesus hasn't eaten. And so the, the devil tempts him to turn stones into bread. That is to take food illegitimately. Okay, Jesus isn't meant to be doing that. But, but the devil says, look, you're hungry. Why don't you take that food that, that God said you shouldn't take? It's just like Eden, isn't it? The Garden of Eden. Why don't you take that fruit that you're not allowed? But where Adam fell, the first Adam, the first son, Jesus stayed strong. So the devil tries another tactic. Uh, what does he do this time? He takes them up and shows them all the kingdoms of the world and says, look, I can give you all these. Just worship me. Again, it's like the garden. Listen to me, the serpent said. Not God, listen to me. Take the fruit and then you'll be like God. This is, I am the way to blessing. Follow me and you'll be blessed. Adam fell. Christ stayed strong. And so the devil tries one last time, a third time, takes him up to the top of the temple and says, jump off. You're not going to die. You're God's son. If you're God's son, he'll rescue you. You won't die if you jump off the temple. Does that ring any bells of the Garden of Eden? Remember the serpent? Eat the fruit. You won't die. You surely won't die. Put God to the test. You won't die. Adam fell. Christ stays strong. And what we're going to be seeing in in this story is that finally a human has come on the scene who is faithful, who keeps God's law, who lives the life that we should have lived. Finally, someone has come on the scene who God can, in justice, bless. God is a good God, but he's a just God. So he always does what is right. That means he can't give blessings to people who don't deserve them. Children, when you do exams at school uh, and you work hard for your exams, and let's say you get, you're told by your teacher, look, if you get 10 out of 10, you get double break time. And you work really hard and you get 10 out of 10. Well, your teacher will give you double break time. But what if the person next to you did no work at all, doesn't bother with the test, fails, it just scribbles all over it and hands the, the paper in? What if then the teacher said, I'll give you double break time anyway? That wouldn't be fair, would it? That wouldn't be just. God always does what is just, what is right. Therefore, he can't naturally bless you and me. He can't just give you and me eternal life. Because we, like Adam, like Israel disobey and rebel. But Jesus alone earns every blessing from the Father. That's why the Father says to him, with you I'm well pleased. Now Jesus is divine, of course. Jesus is the Son of God. In that sense, he is without age. God is eternal. But he's also a human being. He comes as man. And as man, he is God's youngest son. Jesus is now, well, roughly 2018 years old. Adam, I don't know how old Adam is, a lot more. God's youngest son is the one alone who earns the blessing. Why is that significant for us? Well, we just need to put one more piece of the puzzle in place. And we're back 
in Genesis. Back in Genesis. This time, not chapter 48, but chapter 49. We didn't read it, but, 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 but Jacob's words went on, Genesis 49. They went on, and he then blessed all his 12 sons in chapter 49. Uh, the author makes it clear that they are all blessings. So in chapter 49, verse 28, we're told that the father um, blessed them, blessing each of them with a blessing suitable to them. Bless, bless, bless. The father of Jacob is blessing all the 12 tribes. You read some of them, and they don't feel like blessings. Some of them, we won't look at all of them, but some of them feel like, well, more like they're being told off. But still, they're all described as being blessed. And all these 12 sons of, of Israel will go into the promised land, will earn that little foretaste, if you like, of heaven. And they are all blessed. But two in particular stand out. Two in particular stand out. And they are Joseph and Jacob. The blessing on Joseph is in verses 22 to 26. Uh, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a string. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessing of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. There's lots of little detail there that it's difficult to understand and we won't dig into, but, but the word blessing comes time and time again. Joseph's blessing is, is much longer than his brother Naphtali, for example, in verse 21, which is just one verse. Naphtali is like a doe let loose that bears beautiful forms. It's kind of nice, but it's short. Whereas Joseph has this massive long blessing as does Judah, uh, verses 8 through 12. Joseph and Judah are the ones who were really blessed among the 12. Now, in part, what, Joseph, what Jacob is doing is um, predicting the future. It is Joseph and Judah that become the two dominant tribes uh, as the, the 12 tribes go into the land. Uh, Joseph and Judah have the preeminence, if you like, so Judah becomes the dominant tribe in the south and Joseph in the north, often called Ephraim after his eldest son. I think of the 12 spies who were sent into the land. Do you remember the 12 spies who go in and check out the land? 10 of them are unfaithful, two are faithful. Caleb, who's from Judah, and Joshua, who's from Joseph or Ephraim. Okay, so these are the two dominant tribes. And in fact, when the whole thing splits in two, the kings of the south are from Judah and the kings of the north, initially at least, are from Ephraim. So it's not a surprise after all we've seen of this Joseph story that Joseph's descendants are going to be important. The surprise, I think, is Judah. Look at verse 8. Judah. Now, this is the most significant of all the blessings. Judah, verse 8. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What's that all about? What, what is Jacob promising, blessing Judah and his descendants with? 
Still, did you see it? What animal is Judah going to be like? See it down there in verse 9? What is it? Yeah, abs- lion. A lion. Yeah, a lion's cub. Now, can you think of any film, children, you've seen about a lion? Okay, I'm really hoping you've seen this film. A cartoon. Oh. Go on, Abs. Oh, Narnia, good one. I didn't think about that. Exactly, that's very good. Narnia is better than mine. Um, we should have chatted midweek. That would have been better. Narnia, where Aslan, the lion, is the king. I was thinking of the Lion King. Have you seen the Lion King? Yeah, there we go, the Lion King. The Lion King. The lion is the king of beasts, isn't he? He's the one in charge. Judah's being told, you and your descendants are going to be the king. Uh, that's why he's told the scepter will remain between your feet. It's a slightly difficult verse to translate. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And the next beat, you could translate until he comes to whom it belongs. That is, Judah, you're going to hold that the scepter, you remember that's what kings hold, the scepter and the ruler's staff. You're going to hold them until the one to whom they belong arrives. Who is he talking about? Who is the great descendant of Judah? Well, ultimately, Jesus. He comes from this tribe. This is the first prediction, if you like, that Jesus is going to be of the tribe of Judah. That's why in Revelation, he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king through whom blessing comes. And when this king comes, what's it going to be like? Well, it's a strange description to us. But look at verse 11. When this come, king comes, he's going to bind his foal, his little horse or his donkey, to the choice vine. What does that mean? Well, binding your donkey, if you bound your donkey, tied your donkey, imagine you'd, dri- you'd driven somewhere on a donkey. Imagine you'd ridden somewhere on a do- donkey children. And then you tied it up to the grapes. What's the donkey going to do? Eat the grapes, exactly. Now, the grapes are normally for you to make. Do you know what you make out of grapes? Well, you do. Uh, what do you make out of grapes? Yeah. I, wine, brilliant, good knowledge. Um, you normally make wine out of grapes, so they're expensive. You don't want to waste them on donkeys. But so wealthy is this king that he can afford to let his donkey eat grapes. Again, children, it'd be a bit like going home for your roast dinner. Your mum made a lovely, maybe a roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, all the rest of it and feeding it to the dog, letting your dog eat it because you've got such amazing food. You've got so much that even the dog can have the best food. So he's going to be a king of immense wealth. So much so, actually, in verse 11, the second half of verse 11, at the top of the next page, he washes his garments in wine. He has baths in champagne, if you like. So wealthy, so full of blessing is this king. Again, ultimately, it's trying to paint a picture of a restored beautiful kingdom. It's trying to paint a little picture of the world we all want. If you like, Judah is holding the brochure of the the greatest holiday ever. He hasn't arrived yet, he's just got the brochure, the advert, but it's a picture to give us a glimpse of how great this world will be. It's passed down the generations, through all the pages of scripture, until finally Christ arrives. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah. And when his kingdom comes, ultimately, it will be a kingdom of immense blessing. The Bible promises us that, that when he returns, when Christ finally returns, that then his kingdom will be a kingdom of peace, a kingdom without pain, a kingdom without suffering, a kingdom where there's no more tears, 
no more illness, no more death, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness. Those gathered around his throne, we get a glimpse of it in heaven. I sing to him, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. His kingdom will be astoundingly good to be a part of. And you see, he's going to share it. Verse 10, the king comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. These blessings are not just going to be for Jesus. He's going to share them. And so as we close, I just want to put these pieces together. I realize this is a very tricky corner of scripture. It's not the kind of part of the Bible that we normally read. It's hard work. But I just want to bring us to one last passage to just try and see how this all fits together. Come with me to the book of Galatians, page 973. Book of Galatians, 973. 973. As we close. 973. Galatians 3. And verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, or we might say Jacob, it's the same blessing, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Look, there's lots going on in that verse. We're not going to unpack it all. But, but, but where are we? What have we seen today? God has said, my youngest son is the one who ultimately will get blessing. Jesus earned that blessing. He lived a perfect life fulfilled God's law, lived as you and I should have lived. He never sinned in thought or word or deed, never turned to the left or right. Imagine the pressure on him all his life, and yet he never faltered. So he can earn that blessing. Whereas you and I really deserve cursing. A bit like Jacob's sons, the 12 of them were scoundrels. Remember Reuben slept with his dad's wife? Simeon and Levi butchered a whole village of people. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law. The 12 guys who are blessed in Genesis 49 are utter scoundrels, and yet they're blessed. How does God bless such, well, frankly, wicked people? He does through, through this son. The son obeys perfectly. But then verse 13, what happens? Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. The curse was ours, but he becomes a curse for us. There's another switch. He is the one who should have been blessed, but instead he takes the curse upon himself. The curse is the exact opposite of the blessing. It is death, misery, and disaster. It is meeting God in anger rather than in blessing. Ultimately, it's hell, not heaven. And Christ on the cross, that's the tree that it's talking about. Christ is hanged on the cross to take the curse from us. Yes, you and I deserved it, but Christ takes it from us. In order that, what, just that the curse might go and we might be sort of have another go at trying to live a good life for God? No. In order that, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Gentiles, just you and me, anyone who's not a Jew. Christ takes the curse and gives us the blessing that he earned. Therefore, if you want the world that we all want, if you want that blessing, peace, harmony, eternal life, it is found only by coming to Jesus Christ. But that is all you need to do. You don't need to earn it from him. You don't need to say enough prayers, attend enough church services, do enough good deeds that, that somehow it'll be given to you. You can't do enough. We're all cursed naturally. But he comes 
lives the life we should have lived, dies the death we should have died, in order that he can give it to us freely. That's why at the end of the Gospels, the last thing Jesus does, he goes up to heaven and he blesses. He can't lay his hands on everybody because he's going up to heaven. So he puts his hands in the air and he blesses the disciples. That's why earlier on in the service, I laid my hand on Hannah's head and pronounced one of those blessings, the Lord bless you and keep you. It's not a prayer, it's an announcement, if you like. It's why at the end of the service, Protestant ministers have put their hands in the air and, and pronounce a blessing. It is an announcement that God is for us. God will bless us because Christ achieved everything. Look, life is a mess now. Some of you know that more than others. You will experience that the disharmony, uh, you've had broken relationships, people have let you down, uh, people have harmed you, hurt you, you might even be living in fear. Uh, you live in disharmony with the world, disease, death, break in and cause terrible tragedy. And all of us know this this sense of being cut off from God. We don't just naturally know him. But he does promise, come to Christ, and one day, when he returns, when he comes, the one whose crown it, it is, when he comes, he will share a blessed world with his people. So for now, hold on, be patient, look to the horizon. He will come, and he will bless. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, confess before you that naturally we should be people of curse, not blessing. That naturally uh, we are not those who deserve to live in the world we all want. The world of blessing and harmony and peace. We praise you therefore that you're so full of kindness that Jesus came and became a curse that we might receive the blessing. So Father, strengthen our faith in him, your youngest son, uh, your true son. And enable us in him to receive all that you've promised from Genesis to Revelation. We ask this in his name. Amen.